Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. July has been relatively quiet, but we do have some really interesting cases to discuss on this episode. First, after losing their adoption discrimination case in the Third Circuit, a Catholic adoption agency is asking the Supreme Court to take up their case seeking a license to discriminate against LGBTQ people. Second, despite being soundly defeated at every turn in the lower courts, a transgender teenager's mother has asked the Supreme Court to recognize a parent's due process rights to control her child's life. Third, in a dangerous and deeply troubling ruling, a federal appeals court has refused to reopen asylum proceedings for a lesbian from Uganda. Finally, we're going to chat a bit about the flurry of supportive briefs being filed in the LGBT Title VII employment cases before SCOTUS. And with us is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How are you? Hi, Eric. We're both dressed for summer here. <laughs> We're very... Um, very casual. Very casual. I couldn't even describe this as business cash. I'm showing a little leg and you're showing a little arm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're both sweaty too. Um, all right, so let's dig. Are, are you casting aspersions that? on New York Law School's air conditioning? <laughs> um, I know you just arrived. It's a touch toasty. Yes. Um, all right, so um, let's dig right into the first set segment. When the city of Philadelphia learned that two of its foster care providers refused licenses to same-sex couples to be foster parents, the city stopped referring children to these agencies. Catholic Social Services and its anti-LGBT lawyers from the Beckett Fund sued on the grounds that the right to free exercise of religion and free speech entitled these agencies to a license to discriminate. They would like the government to participate in their practice of turning away qualified same-sex couples for being same-sex couples. They lost in the district court. They lost in the Third Circuit. So now they're turning to the Supreme Court. Art, tell us about these cases. Okay. Well, these cases, it's actually just one case. Yeah, it's just one. <laughs> the other agency backed down yeah, okay. and, and agreed because they were told that they would lose their contract. Okay, so the Philadelphia Inquirer decided to do an article about this issue because it's an issue around the country. In fact, in several uh, other cities, Catholic social service agencies have terminated foster care or adoption programs under pressure from city councils and mayors, et cetera. Mm. Uh, so Catholic social services responded to this uh, reporter that consistent with Catholic doctrine, they would not deal with same-sex couples. If same-sex couples were to apply to them, they would refer them to another agency. Mm. And it seems, uh, according to the CERC petition and the allegations here by Catholic Social Services, there are in the neighborhood of 30 licensed agencies in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. So uh, it's clear that a same-sex couple who wants to be foster parents have places to go. But interestingly, uh, this agency and one other agency uh, told the reporter, no, we don't deal with same-sex couples. The Inquirer ran an article. There was uproar in the city council, which passed a resolution and called on the mayor to look into this. The mm -hmm. mayor directed uh, the city's uh, Civil Rights Commission and 
the department that has contracts with foster care agencies to do an investigation. Mm. All right, so the head of that department decided, since the article indicated only religious organizations were refusing, that she would only talk to religious organizations about this. Okay. Uh, she surveyed the religious organizations that they had contracts with, narrowed it down to the two that were refusing to serve same-sex couples, pressured them, one of them caved, Catholic Social Services did not. Okay. They said, consistent with our religious principles, we just cannot uh, evaluate same-sex couples as potential foster parents. It would violate our First Amendment rights of freedom of speech to require us to certify them if we found that they otherwise qualified. And furthermore, uh, it violates our free exercise of religion to force us to deal with same-sex couples. Uh, and we're talking about married same-sex couples. So this is another one of the areas where the marriage equality movement and the Obergefell decision have generated a new body of interesting case law. So uh, the, uh, the department stopped making referrals to Catholic Social Services, and they have an existing contract. It runs out in a while. By now it may have already run out. And they told them, we're not going to renew your contract unless you sign a statement stating that you will deal with same-sex couples. Now, there had previously been no requirement to sign a statement that one is complying with the city's fair practice law. They have a fair practice ordinance, mm. uh, which covers uh, sexual orientation and gender identity in Philadelphia. Yep. Uh, so uh, the agency said, look, we are not a place of public accommodation, so we're not covered by the fair practice ordinance, and we have a First Amendment right. And uh, they're arguing that uh, because the agency newly adopted this requirement, that is the department, the city department newly adopted this requirement in response to Catholic Social Services' refusal, therefore it isn't a general, a neutral law of general application, rather it is focused on religion. They point out that the uh, head of the department only surveyed religious sure. providers. And therefore, this new rule requiring a certification in order to renew the contract uh, is targeted to religion. Mm -hmm. So they say it's not covered by Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court's precedent that says that there is no general religious exemption from complying with neutral laws of general application. Right, so. This is just, I'm, I'm is seeing the masterpiece cake. No, I'm actually just seeing, you know, yeah. that we're seeing this, oh, how can we show that religious organizations were targeted by people in a particular way, right? Because they disapprove of the religious organizations. Right. To or, feed this or narrative. Their, or right. the doctrine. Yeah. So uh, the uh, district court uh, refused to give them a preliminary injunction. You know, they ran into court seeking a preliminary injunction. They said, look, our funding is already being hit. We're not getting any more referrals. Once our contract expires, we won't be getting any financial assistance. And furthermore, they said... Good, we're not funding your And, and furthermore, they said, <laughs> we couldn't even continue to run this program if we could find charitable money to support it, because under the uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia statutes and ordinances, you have to be a licensed contractor with the city yeah. in order to conduct this screening of foster parents and uh, getting court approval, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, well, there uh, are 30 other agencies so said, that can do it right, so yeah. who needs you? They said, we're going to be knocked out of business, so okay. we clearly have standing here. Uh, so they went into court, they seek yeah. a preliminary injunction, the district judge turns them down. Uh, the district judge says, no, the fair practice ordinance does apply to them. It is a neutral law of general application. They are a public accommodation. The requirement <laughs> that they state 
and they are public accommodation, and the requirement that they state that they will comply with city law in order to get their contract renews is, you know, it's it's just complying with law, and under <laughs> Employment Division versus Smith, they have no First Amendment right to refuse. Yeah. Uh, and furthermore, when they are certifying a couple as being qualified to be foster parents, that's government speech. They're doing that speech by contract with the government. It's not private speech, and so there's no First Amendment protection for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so the district judge ruled against them. They went to the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit ruled against them. Uh, and then they applied for emergency relief in the Supreme Court. This is last summer. Okay. And the Supreme Court turned them down, but noted that three members would have granted their request for uh, temporary relief. This is last summer. Last summer, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito, and Justice Thomas. Remember, there was a vacancy on the court right, at the time. sure. Okay, since then, Kavanaugh has joined yep. the court. Uh, it takes five votes to grant relief. It Why takes not? only four, four. votes yeah. to grant a cert petition, which means if Kavanaugh agrees with those other, other three, there are four votes for a cert petition. Uh, how Roberts would come out on this, nobody knows. Uh, but I think when you, when you look at why is the uh, Beckett Fund so interested in this, they've stepped in to, to represent the agency. Yeah. And if you look at the cert petition, you know, they, they put this last of the three questions they posed to the court. But it's the key question for them. Should Employment Division versus Smith be revisited? Rethought, overruled. I mean, their, their second question is: Did the courts misapply Employment Division versus Smith because uh, this is not a rule of general application? Uh, it's specifically aimed at religious organizations, you know, because they're going through the whole thing. They right. only surveyed the religious providers, right. etc. But they'd rather not this narrow question. They yes. want the broader. Although they, they probably would be happy. Oh, uh, sure. To to win on any theory, and of course, their first question is. Uh, does this fall within masterpiece in in the sense that this evinces hostility to religion because of the way this whole thing played out? Uh, you know, people are trying to ride masterpiece into a uh, a precedent for this. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the same thing is happening. A, a brief was just filed on the remand in the uh, uh, Sweet Cakes by Melissa case, which uh-huh. the court remanded for reconsideration of right. masterpiece. And the entire focus of the brief on remand is that the head of the Civil Rights Agency was making posts on Facebook and commenting about this adversely before the case was even filed. Yeah. You know, based on newspaper accounts. They say, hostility to religion. That's going to be the new watchword there. Uh, So there is a significant chance that cert will be granted in this case. Wow. uh, Because there were already three justices that were interested in in trying to uh, block uh, or uh, provide temporary uh, relief while the case was uh, was going forward, and I think it's possible Kavanaugh would have joined them, likely. Uh, so they, uh, but they still wouldn't have gotten relief without Roberts. Yeah. But uh, in, as far as the cert petition goes, it only takes four votes. Wow. Uh, so it could be that we'll be back in the Supreme Court on this issue, which is an issue that has aroused controversy around the country, because many uh, cities contract with Catholic agencies. Yeah. Uh, and other religious agencies, some of them are fine with same-sex couples, some of them are not, but Catholic agencies have been standing strong in opposition. And this is, you know, the government having to provide 
you know, referral, actually contract with these right. uh, it, it's It's not just companies. making referrals. It's, it's delegating to them what is really a governmental and function. function. Right. Although the interesting thing uh, in, in reading the CERF petition, and of course the CERF petition is focused in a way to try to make the agency look great and yeah. try to make the city look poor, uh, but they point out that this agency was formed in 1917. They've been performing this function since 1917. Nobody has filed any complaints against them for turning away same-sex couples because you know what? In a city with 30 agencies and with the reputation of Catholic agencies, same-sex couples have not approached them. And they said, and we wouldn't just say go away. We would say here's a list of agencies that could be receptive to your application. So, And, and they presented uh, evidence that uh, referring people back and forth between agencies is fairly often done, uh, and that, in fact, uh, the agency is allowed to evaluate couples using criteria that would perhaps be illegal under the Fair Practice Ordinance. This is part of their argument why the Fair Practice Ordinance doesn't apply to them. They said, we're allowed to take into account things like the age of a couple, and we're, uh, we're, we've been allowed and even encouraged to take into account matching foster kids on I, the basis of race and religion. I know, but the, okay, so uh, any of these apologist arguments, I mean, if we sit there and think, if this were an interracial couple that they were trying to turn away, yeah. we just don't deal with them. There are other agencies that deal with interracial couples. I'm so sorry. Nobody would be saying, well, that that is an accommodation. We would be saying, this is racist. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Philadelphia doesn't have to deal with this agency. Well, we'll see. One, one of the problems we have is that, of course, the city delegating functions to a religious organization and allowing the religious organization yeah. to substitute its doctrinal views for city law raises real establishment clause issues in That's my mind. Too, yeah. The problem is the current Supreme Court majority is basically treats the establishment clause as a nullity. Right. They're, I mean, at least the right wing of the court are very expansive free exercise folks. Right. Uh, particularly when it's one particular religion. Right. <laughs> above others. Um, okay, so, um, you know, this is also, it, it makes me think that the Third Circuit got this right. Um, the circuit courts decide most of these cases. The Supreme Court now with Kavanaugh may grant this, but just how important the circuits are and that the Third Circuit just recently flipped um, to more Republican appointees than Democrat, um, where Obama had made some real gains in the circuits, the Third Circuit flipped back just recently because of the judges that they're confirming. So this is only going to get worse. Um, but. Uh, Let's talk about another case that hopefully we'll have. I don't see this one getting granted, but let's take a break and we come back. We'll chat about it. And we're back. A Minnesota mom has turned to the Supreme Court to ask them to review a ruling against her in an attempt to prevent her transgender daughter from receiving gender confirmation surgery. Her daughter has since turned 18 and is now legally an adult. She moved out when she was 15 years old. The woman's petition misgenders her daughter, who goes by EJK in court documents to protect anonymity. She is suing the mother, medical providers, and school educators claiming they violated her parental rights by not providing notice of EJK's transition. Art, tell us about this cert petition. Okay, this is a, a peculiar sort of case, yeah. especially because 
the uh, a lot of the relief that was being sought in the lower courts is now moot. Right. Since uh, EJK has uh, become an adult legally and is emancipated. All right. So, so the issue is that Anne Marie Calgaro, who's the mother, uh, in in my article in Law Notes about this, I, I opened it. Anne Marie Calgaro is one angry mama. Oh my God. What she's angry about is her teenage, what she she considers her teenage son, but uh, EJK identifies as female. So EJK finally could, couldn't take it anymore at home with a mother who disapproved of her gender identity, so she finally moved out. She was 15. It's tragic. Uh, it is unclear from the cert petition or from the lower court decisions whether uh, Anne-Marie Calgaro was married to EJK's biological father. Uh, the father isn't named and is referred to throughout the opinions as just the biological father, so I'm suspecting that they're not married. Okay. Uh, so uh, EJK went to live with her father for a while, but that didn't really work out. And then she started couch surfing, basically. Oh, my God. Uh, living with relatives and friends, moving from place to place. Yeah. She didn't want her mother to know where she was. Uh, she didn't want her mother uh, trying to uh, force her to come back home. So uh, she went to a legal aid office. And she asked an attorney what she could do. And she was advised that uh, uh, on the basis of all the facts we see, you are legally emancipated. You're no longer living at home. You're no longer being supported by your parents. Uh, and you can go to social services. You can try to get some financial assistance. Yeah. Uh, you can seek health care. Uh, you can ask your school, your school. She was a high school student. You can ask your school to recognize you as, as a female. Uh, she didn't go to court to become legally emancipated because that would require giving notice to her parents hmm. and having a hearing and everything. She didn't want her parents to know what was going on. Okay. Uh, so she didn't go to court to get legally emancipated. But she took this letter, and it seems that a lawyer's letter from a legal aid office can be a powerful tool when confronting people who are afraid of being sued and who maybe are empathetic about your situation and want to help you. Yeah. So she was able to get public assistance. That's good. She was able to get health care, two different health care institutions, uh, and some funding for that from the county. Uh, her principal at the high school was willing to treat her as female. And uh, meanwhile, Anne-Marie Calgaro was freaking out. She doesn't know what's going on. She calls the school. They won't talk to her. She asked to see uh, student records. They won't do it. She uh, reaches out to the county, to healthcare people. No one will talk to her. No one will tell her what has happened to her daughter, or as she thinks, her yeah, son. Who cares? Uh, so she's really upset. And finally, she goes to court because finally she finds out sort of what's going on. And what's going on is that EJK is being treated as a girl, is receiving public assistance and is uh, getting uh, health care for her gender transition. And uh, Anne-Marie Calgaro says, she's a minor, I'm her parent, I have legal custody of her, I have a right to be heard on this issue. Uh, they shouldn't be doing any of this stuff without notice to me and a chance for me to be heard because I'm opposed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, she brought this lawsuit, and she's claiming it's a violation of her constitutional rights. Right. The first problem she runs into with the healthcare institutions is that they're not public, they're private. Mm. So they're not state actors. And if they're not state actors, the Constitution doesn't apply. So cancel them out. 
All right, she's suing the school district. Uh, the school district is not liable for what the principal does unless the principal is enforcing an established policy of the school district. Okay. You know, uh, government agencies and institutions are only subject to liability for their own policies, not for the discretionary actions of their employees. There is not respondeat superior liability under the Constitution here. Okay. Uh, so In another situation, yes, I might be like, yes. this is really Does the school district have a policy about this? And the answer was the school district had no policy about this. Yeah. So they're off the hook under the 14th Amendment. What about the principal? Well, the principal is performing a discretionary function. Public officials performing a discretionary function within their job uh, category uh, are shielded by qualified immunity unless it can be shown that there is a well-established precedent in the circuit where they're located or, or from the Supreme Court uh, that would show that what they're doing is unconstitutional. Well, there is no well-established precedent. In fact, there are even cases that the lower courts cite that say that a parent doesn't have a constitutional right to see their child's educational records. So the refusal of the principal right. to uh, allow uh, Ms. Calgaro to see uh, EJK's educational records does not subject the principal to personal liability under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at the county agency that provided financial support to her. Uh, in terms of providing financial support to a minor, you're not supposed to do it unless they're emancipated. But if you look at the definition of emancipation, there's a sort of joker in the deck there that it's someone doesn't necessarily have to have gone to court mm. to be legally emancipated. They could be de facto emancipated mm. based on the circumstances. Yeah. And the county agency, you know, they had the letter from the legal aid lawyer with an opinion that EJK was emancipated, they followed it. Yeah. Well, they, they're not liable under the Constitution for doing that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, she struck out all around. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, uh, the district court ruled against her. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against her. And the Thomas More Society, another one of these religiously... Uh, I don't know what you'd say affiliated, religious litigation groups, yeah. uh, is suing on her behalf, claiming that her 14th Amendment rights are being violated. And uh, they filed a cert petition, which tells the story, of course, from her perspective, Yeah, that, that, that all of these people, these agencies and healthcare people are uh, conspiring against her, uh, taking her son away, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this is the kind of story that, in fact, I, I wrote this up for Gay City News, and my editor said, you know, I'm a little disturbed by this case. It's so disturbing. You know? Think about what the little girl has been through yeah. at 15 to have to no, go but, through. But, but my editor was disturbed at oh. the idea that the mother has no rights here, too. You know, is, is the court saying that it's okay for all these agencies to do this? And I said to him, no, the court's saying that it doesn't violate the Constitution. There are Supreme Court cases about the due process rights of parents with regard to minors, that there's a, uh, yeah. a presumption that fit parents are entitled to custody of their kids and yeah. that they have a right to control their schooling and they have a right to decide who their, uh, who their companions will be, who has access to them, et cetera, of their health care decisions and stuff like that. So it is a big deal to treat a minor as emancipated. Uh, will this tempt the Supreme Court? I doubt it. Uh, but you know, Particularly, I mean, I just don't see how you get around the fact that 
she's 18. Um, now she's 18, right, and so a lot of it is do? moot. Right. It's, it's, well, she's saying, I have younger kids, and I want a declaration okay. that the state can't do this with my younger kids. Okay. But there's no indication, the court says, that the state's going to yeah. do this with the younger kids. None of them have run away. No, no indication that any of them are transgender or anything like that. So uh, this boils down to, uh, to the question whether a parent has a constitutional right to prevent their yes. transgender kid from getting assistance. A mother who tormented her child now seeking to continue well, tormenting them. We don't know all the facts. By That's rejecting, the okay, well, rejecting their identity and misgendering them in papers seems to be uh, evidence of that's probably That's probably the situation. But oh. at, at any rate, this is a case that's there. Mm -hmm. uh, chances are that because the Thomas More Society is pushing it, you know, it might capture the interest of some of the justices. Yeah. We'll see. All right, let's take a short break, and when we get back, we'll talk about a case out of the First Circuit involving a lesbian from Uganda. Okay, we're back. The First Circuit denied a petition to order the Board of Immigration Appeals, BIA, to reopen the immigration case of a lesbian Ugandan woman. This comes despite her pleas that she could be persecuted and even killed if she returns to Uganda, where homosexuality is illegal and punishable by life in prison. To make things worse, the, coin, the court pointed out that she could try petitioning the attorney general for help based on urgent humanitarian reasons, which we all know Trump's attorney general is not likely to do. Art, tell us about this case. All right, this is a, a, a sad case because uh, it's, it's like the court is saying, look, we know things in Uganda are terrible for out gay people. We know you could die. Yeah, but we've got to send you back because our hands are tied, basically, because, and what it really boils down to, although the court doesn't come out and say it when you read the whole opinion, uh, what it comes down to is she didn't figure out that she was gay until a certain point, and she didn't evidently want to make anything out of that in her original removal proceeding. Mm. And getting things to reopen uh, is difficult once an initial decision is made. And I have a feeling, I, the, the, the lower court decisions on this are, are not transparent. You know, they're rather cursory and opaque, as is true in most of these immigration uh, cases, appeals from uh, BIA determinations. Mm. Uh, did she even tell the attorney who was representing her in the original proceedings that she was a lesbian? Yeah. You know, because things that were happening at the time would have made a very strong case. All right, so the situation is uh, she came to the U.S. in October 2001 on a six-month visitor's visa, and she overstayed which is how a lot of people uh, try to stay in the country. She subsequently married a, a man who was a U.S. citizen, and she attained the status of a lawful permanent resident in 2004. But immigration authorities challenge the marriage's validity. Uh, when people are claiming status through a marriage, uh, there's always suspicions that this may have just been a put-up job for the purpose of getting the right to stay here. Uh, so they did an investigation. They decided it was a sham marriage. And uh, if it's a sham marriage, then they're going to prosecute her for committing fraud on the government. And they did. And she was convicted of conspiring to defraud the U.S., and she was sentenced to a year in prison. 
after which removal proceedings were immediately begun. Uh, during those removal proceedings... So this is back in 2004? Uh, well, this is after she served her year, so oh, okay. it's a few years after that. So okay. uh, during the removal proceedings, uh, she did not raise the issue of being a lesbian, even though in prison she had met a woman with whom she began a relationship. Okay. Uh, in a relationship, uh, Judge Selya, who wrote the opinion here uh, for the First Circuit... She met a female prisoner with whom she developed a romantic relationship. This relationship outlasted the petitioner's incarceration and led to the petitioner coming out as a lesbian. So she's identifying as a lesbian, but did she tell her lawyer? Did they make anything out of this? No, they didn't make anything out of this. During the removal proceedings, she admitted the allegations of the notice to appear, and she conceded removability. She uh, conceded she was not entitled to any relief from removal. And the immigration judge ordered her removed to Uganda on May 12, 2014. Mm -hmm. What was happening in Uganda at that time? There was turmoil in the country as American ministers were urging right. the Ugandan government to adopt a draconian revision of their sodomy law. Right. I mean, this was all going on at the time. Yeah. This would have been great grounds if she was willing to be out. But evidently, she wasn't out in that proceeding. But subsequently, she... Uh, got new counsel. They went back. They, she filed a timely motion. They filed a timely motion to reopen her removal proceedings, seeking to apply for asylum or withholding of removal or protection under the Convention Against Torture. And she sought a stay of the existing removal order that had been issued by the immigration judge. Uh, and she said, uh, this should be reopened because I have recently identified as a lesbian and uh, LGBT people are members of a social class recognized under U.S. immigration law if you can show that the country from which they came would be likely to persecute them for being a lesbian or, in fact, that they might be uh, subject to torture at the hands of the government or people whom the government would acquiesce with in, in inflicting torture or persecution. Uh, the problem is, usually, in establishing that sort of thing, it's helpful to show that while you were back in the home country, you were subjected to persecution. She wasn't out then. She didn't even identify as a lesbian then. So she has no past incidents of persecution. Right, but we so know everything depends, the history of yeah. Uganda. The everything depends on we'll a country report. Yeah, everything depends on her showing that uh, if she was, uh, was sent back there, she would be subject to persecution. And part of the problem is, because this was a motion to reopen, she has to show that country conditions now are different from what they were at the time that the original order uh, to send her back uh, was issued. And she couldn't, because conditions in Uganda have been atrocious throughout. In the meantime, the highest court in Uganda held that that draconian anti-gay sodomy law had been uh, invalidly enacted because of the way the legislature conducted its business. Uh, and it was set aside, leaving in place the less draconian existing anti-sodomy law. It's still a crime. Uh, but she filed a second motion to reopen her removal case mm. on June 25th, 2018. That was untimely under the rules. She'd allowed too much time to go by. But she attached a trove, says the court, this is a quote, a trove of documents, including country condition reports, family correspondence, photographs, a psychiatric assessment, 
aimed in part at showing changed circumstances. But the BIA rejected this motion as well. First, they said it's procedurally barred because it's untimely. But second, they said, all of the stuff she presented failed to establish a material change in Ugandan country conditions since her earlier motion or her original proceeding. Yeah. Uh, so she petitioned for judicial review finally. But while her petition was pending at the First Circuit, she was removed back to Uganda. But that doesn't moot her case. The court says it's still possible that if we rule in her favor that she'd be allowed to come back. So the issue for the court was twofold. Because this petition was untimely, under the rules governing this process, did she qualify for an exception? Okay. And the answer is there is a provision in the law allows exceptions, but the exception requires you to show that conditions are worse now than they were when the case was originally decided. And the court says, look, she can't show that because, frankly, uh, Judge Selya writes, the record makes manifest that Uganda has historically and persistently discriminated against individuals who engage in same-sex sexual activity. To be sure, the submitted materials reflect an ongoing animus against LGBT individuals in Uganda manifested through harassment, violence, and the like. But the record contains nothing that fairly suggests a deepening of this animus over the relevant oh period. <laughs> Instead, it discloses that the criminalization of same-sex sexual activity has remained official policy since colonial times. Oh, my God. Put bluntly, the, and put bluntly writes Celia, the situation is dreadful. But it has been dreadful throughout the relevant period. This is so and the issue here, yeah. this is like, you know, Dickensian. <sighs> if this is the law, the law is an ass. Can't we t recognize what the current situation is right. and say, is it, does it really violate basic human rights yeah. to, to forcibly send this person back to Uganda? And the answer is, that isn't the question under U.S. immigration law. Yes, it's terrible. Uh, and, and the judge says, we have no illusions about what is happening in Uganda with respect to LGBT individuals. And they refer to another case they decided, sexual minorities Uganda versus Lively. That was against this anti-gay minister who went over to Uganda to whip up the oh, fervor. Oh, Scott Lively, Scott sure. Lively. Oh. Uh, and, and the court had said that uh, the uh, sexual minorities Uganda, the gay organization for Uganda, did not have standing or the court didn't have jurisdiction over over what Lively did over there. Uh, Judge Selya writes, we regard the views of the Ugandan government toward members of the LGBT community as benighted, and we know that the petitioner's life in her homeland may prove trying. That, to me, is the understatement of the year. Oh, my God. Uh, interestingly, the three-judge panel of the First Circuit that decided this case is composed entirely of Republican appointees. Senior Circuit Judge Celia and Judge Torello were appointed by Reagan, and Chief Judge Howard was appointed by George W. Bush. So they express sort of concern and sympathy, but they say nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. All right. Well, that was difficult, but give us a little bit of an update on um, the argument date, the pro-LGBT briefing, and the Title VII cases. Okay. And this is our of note, I suppose. Yay! Although I had another of note that I was thinking <laughs> That's but, okay. Uh, the, the deadline for filing amicus briefs mm -hmm. in support of the employees in these three cases was July 3rd. Okay. And there has been a flood of amicus briefs. Now, this is just briefs on our side. Right, yes. The briefs on the other side come in in August because the court, in uh, consolidating all these cases are going to be heard on October 8th, 
which is the second argument day of the term, in consolidating them all, the court sort of reversed things and flipped them around uh, because usually it's amicus briefs in support of the petitioner come first and then in support of the respondent come second. But they're treating uh, two of the cases backwards. Okay. Uh, because uh, the outcomes you know, were different. Right. It's, it's the employer who's appealing. So it should right. be the employer who's filing, uh, you, you know, uh, who filed the petition. They should be coming first. But instead, they're treating this like it's the respondents who came first hmm. in two out of the three cases. Bizarre. Uh, so uh, all we have now are the uh, amicus briefs in support of the argument that Title VII should be interpreted to cover sexual orientation and gender identity claims. And uh, as to that, there are more than 50 briefs, more than 50 briefs. There's uh, sort of an overlap because the briefs, the two uh, sexual orientation cases have been consolidated. So one brief serves for the two cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, The gender identity case is being argued separately. Uh, The sexual orientation case is in the morning, the gender identity case is in the afternoon, different groups of attorneys. Uh, but many of the briefs that were filed mention all three cases and were filed simultaneously in both. Mm. So there's significant overlap. Gotcha. Uh, so there's like 48 briefs in one case and 42 briefs in the other, and when mm. you accumulate with all the overlap, it's a total of more than 50 briefs. Yeah. And uh, they, they make all the arguments you would expect. Uh, the, most of these briefs are what I would call going-on-record briefs. Uh, they're briefs to tell the court, look, Look at these like 200 major corporations that say, yes, we should not be allowed to discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Right. You know, and, these, and there was a separate brief from uh, women who are CEOs of major corporations. And yes, this should cover that. And we don't think that it's sliding traditional sex discrimination claims to have Title VII also cover these other categories. And then there were briefs from scholars in all the relevant fields that you might uh, expect. Uh, to deal with this in terms of history and economics and uh, law. And then uh, there are briefs from legislators. Uh, These are the pro-gay and pro-trans legislators, the antis we'll be filing in August. And so we're probably in our September uh, podcast, we can talk all about the briefs on the other side. Uh, In terms of who's going to argue, we don't know yet who's going to argue uh, all the cases, all the sides for the employers. We do know the Solicitor General's office is going to be there uh-huh. because they have betrayed their agency, the EEOC, and mm-hmm. disagree with it. And in right. fact, this has become commonplace in the Trump administration. Uh, that whether you're talking about the EEOC or the NLRB uh, or other agencies, all of a sudden the administration is changing sides in the course of the case. Yeah. And we shouldn't probably be too hard on them because, after all, the Obama administration changed sides in the Windsor case. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a new administration comes in, they studied the question, they say, hey, we don't agree with what this agency right. decided, yeah. uh, which is still in the control of the other party at that point. Uh, so the Solicitor General will be arguing in the, uh, well, definitely in the Harris Funeral Home, which is the gender identity case, whether they will ask for time to argue on the sexual orientation case, I don't know. Okay. But uh, in terms of arguing for the employees, Brian Sutherland, the Atlanta attorney who has represented Gerald Bostock throughout, has, has asked for 10 minutes. I mean, the court has to agree to allocate. Okay. So a petition was filed jointly by the parties to allocate 10 minutes of the half hour 
to Sutherland and 20 minutes to Professor Pamela J. Carlin, hey. who is the... Please give all 30 to Pam. Who, who is the out lesbian director of Stanford Law School's Supreme Court Litigation yeah. Clinic and who is a frequent Supreme Court oralist. Uh, knowing that her clinic is on the case yep. uh, means that the principal brief is going to be uh, a great brief. They'll right. also have law firms who are doing pro bono work on it. Greg Antolino, who represented the estate of Zarda in the Second Circuit and who won the on-bank case, uh, he was quoted in a news article I read the other day saying, I'll be happy to just sit back at counsel's table and let Pam do the heavy lifting. Pam is wonderful. Uh, and he, he was thinking of her for this all along. She's great. But he wasn't going to do, he said, I'm You're not going to do my maiden argument to the U.S. Supreme Court on a case that's this important. Yeah. Uh, but I think Sutherland is making his maiden argument. Uh, okay. But that doesn't matter. And and the uh, rebuttal time is going to be, uh, is for Pam, unless the court says, no, you have to designate one. And then the question is, will Sutherland step down? Yeah. And I think he probably will, uh, okay. because Pam Carlin is like having a real heavyweight yeah. Supreme Court advocate. And yep. If you look at box scores in the Supreme Court, it's the cases argued by frequent uh, people who frequently argue in the court that tend to do better because they know what it's all about. They know how to prepare. They know what kinds of questions. The, uh, the other thing is there are so few women that get to argue right. before the Supreme Court um, because they favor the same folks over and over again. So um, Pam is just, you know, second to none. Right. So th that would be Excellent. really great. Cool. Uh, so... Uh, we're still waiting to hear from the court whether they'll approve that arrangement, but they usually do. Okay. Uh, and if uh, the arguments are really interesting, they also let it go past the clock, especially yeah. since these will be the only case argued in the morning. Yeah. And Harris Funeral Home is the only case in the afternoon. Okay. Uh, uh, Harris Funeral Home has uh, been represented all along by, I think, ADF. Uh, and the ACLU represents Amy Stevens, right. who is the real party in interest there, yeah. uh, the transgender funeral director. And so someone from the ACLU will be uh, having part of that argument. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much, Art. Um, and thanks to you all for listening. This and future podcasts can be found online at iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.